Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Allison podcast episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed a dollar or more to my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com slash oceanallison. And for those that haven't, visit patreon.com slash oceanallison to watch my video and learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. And now to this month's episode. This episode's ocean advocate is Allison Lee. Allison is a biological oceanography PhD student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, working to bring phytoplankton research to the world of citizen science. Hi, Allison. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, I'm super <laughs> excited to have you on the show. And I feel like this uh, episode of the podcast should be called like Ocean Allison Squared or something. Um, <laughs> just because, you know, we have the same name. Um, you're the first Allison I'm having on the podcast. So it's really great. An um, honor. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background on how Allison and I know each other. So Allison, uh, a friend of Allison's actually recommended that she listen to my podcast about like two years ago now. So Allison decided to give it a listen, being in the science world and loving the ocean and loving science communication. Um, and so she gave it a listen and she really loved it. And um, she actually ended up reaching out to me and um, asking about one of the guests that I had on the show. And Allison actually ended up moving to San Diego shortly after that because she was entering the master's program at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I happened to be living in San Diego as well. So then we really became friends. And um, yeah, we've, we've just kind of remained in touch ever since. Uh, you know, she interviewed me for her blog and we've both been to Antarctica and uh, we love science and we love the ocean and we have the same name. So I wanted to have her on the show today to um, really highlight her and all that she does. And then I also wanted to share a lot of the work that she does with all of you as listeners because her work is super interesting and um, really important. So, Allison, I want to start off by asking you, what initially got you interested in science? Because you've been in the science field for like over a decade now, you know, working in kind of the private sector as well as now in academia and all all over the place. What initially got you interested in science though? Yeah, so I I guess I was never surrounded by scientists growing up and but I'd always been interested in nature and just understanding the environment and really curious about what I discovered later is biology through uh, my undergraduate degree, I initially started off majoring in biology and geology just because they both encompass the natural world and I enjoyed learning about both of them. But I think if we go back to high school when they make you do uh, the career projects where you have to pick a career and then either shadow that person or write a report about the job, I chose astronaut because I also love to travel and thought, oh, the coolest place to travel would be the moon. Um, <laughs> and so when I got to um, the University of Washington for my undergrad, uh, we had, you know, you have to declare your major. And I looked up what NASA astronauts got degrees in, and a lot of it were the sciences. So I started 
my path taking a lot of science classes. And then through those years, just uh, realized that biology was really where I was passionate about uh, exploring. And then um, senior year, actually, I was a late bloomer, if you will, um, senior year of undergrad, a genetics professor said, if you like science, you need to get a lab job. And that was the first time I had really considered like, oh, what's a lab job? Like, I don't I don't know what scientists actually do. I just you only see professors. So you you see professors and you hear about this research done by scientists. So it didn't really start to connect till senior year of undergrad and then the jobs following in that decade where I'm like, okay, I get it. (laughs) And so you do have a lot of experience working in a lab setting as a scientist. So I know for about six years, um, up until recently when you started the master's program at Scripps a few years ago, you were working in Seattle and you were actually studying phytoplankton, which is what you're also studying now in a little bit of a different (laughs) way. But and we'll get to that in a little bit. But can you describe what it was like working in a lab setting as a scientist? Yeah, um, I personally love being in the lab setting. Um, You're surrounded by a lot of these really expensive, powerful, you know, pieces of machinery or equipment like high powered microscopes and uh, genetic sequencers. And so for me, that's really cool. Also being a hands on person, I found it really satisfying to be able to kind of be a busybody moving around the lab, setting up experiments, using my hands to kind of interact with my work. So actually, before the six uh, years I was at uh, the Institute up in Seattle, working in the lab, I had started in undergrad working in a lab, neurobiology lab, and then uh, another three years in an immunology lab, both in the university. And then um, that I was working on projects related to health and immunology with the mouse model organism. And after three, four years of that, I sort of started to wonder what else is there. Like, I don't know if you kind of hit a ceiling on a certain project and need some change. Um, so I actually left the lab setting and went into field biology and ended up being a field biologist for two and a half years, um, gallivanting around the backcountry and the mountains, uh, working on bird projects, squirrel projects, um, macaw projects internationally as well. And, and I started to realize being solely in the field wasn't entirely satisfying, having such a high ecology view of research. But then being in the lab also wasn't as satisfying being so focused in on a certain pathway or a molecular you know, pathway. So I ended up finding this job where it was in the lab again with all of the wet bench skills I had developed just after undergrad, but it was working on an environmentally focused project studying phytoplankton and ocean acidification. And so through that job, I, I realized this was the perfect world where I could blend my interest in the lab and the molecular side of things with more ecology, environmentally applicable questions guiding that research. So it was the blending of those two worlds that really made it satisfying. And that's why I ended up staying for six and a half years and now going into my PhD researching similar topics. Yeah. And and while you were in that job um, that blended those things perfectly for you, you also got to actually go out in the field some. And, and like I mentioned a little bit ago, we both have been to Antarctica doing research and, and that was one of the places that you got to go. So not only were you working in the lab, but you got to visit some really amazing places and and collect samples and things like that there. Right. Yeah, that was definitely a highlight. It wasn't until so when I started that job, it was on a three year grant. 
cycle and I knew I'd be in the lab for those three years. And then surprisingly, my boss three years in came to me and said, hey, I got invited to be on this grant and we're going to Antarctica and you're going. And I was like, what? I don't, I've never been to sea. I've obviously never been to Antarctica. And to be the first destination I go after, you know, this three-year hiatus, not working as a field biologist anymore was just like a dream come true. And so, like I mentioned, you had listened to some of my podcast episodes and one of the episodes that you had listened to was the girls Emily and Amber from Rigs to Reef Exploration on the podcast, and they actually had gotten their master's at Scripps. And so you had reached out to me being like, hey, how can I get in touch with them? Because I'm applying and and might be going to Scripps for that same master's program, and you wanted to get in touch with them, um, which was really great. And you ended up getting in touch with them and then going. And when you reached out to me at that time, you had... um, already developed a really amazing blog that you had shared with me at that time. Oh, thank you. (laughs) um, Yeah, and it's called Woman Scientist for any of you listeners that want to check it out. And um, Allison, can you just give us a little bit of background on the inspiration for starting Woman Scientist? Yeah, so um, I started Woman Scientist, I think, in 2014. What kind of motivated it was, I think, throughout my undergrad time at the University of Washington, I think I was in the biology department, which was, you're more focused with pre-med students and people interested in becoming doctors and going more in the human health route. And so my world being in the lab sciences sort of reflected those passions. But for me, I really loved the field and I didn't feel like Um, there was good representation or community built around the people who had a really strong presence in the field. And there was the um, AWUS, Association for Women in Science, which I became a part of while I was an undergrad. And then later again, uh, when I started Women Scientist, and the pattern was the same. So I think out of that desire to share not only my own stories of having amazing jobs that spanned the field and the lab, but also showcasing other women who were doing that at various stages in their career, whether they were still undergraduates or just out of undergrad or had been research scientists or technicians for a while. It, it didn't matter. I just wanted to show that you could do awesome science and not give up your dream of you know, being in the mountains, being on the water. You can do them together. So I started that website with social media platforms and um, it's been a little on the back burner now that I'm a graduate student, but I definitely am trying to build that up because I've received a lot of positive feedback about it. And then I also get inspired by the people I find. So so like when I uh, discovered your podcast and you're very much into the communication and sharing science with a bigger audience, I really appreciate that. So, you know, I also use these stories as inspiration for myself when I'm feeling unmotivated. I'm like, oh, no, you know, there's examples. I can keep keep on going. Yeah, exactly. And and the collection of women scientists that you've interviewed on, on the blog are just amazing and totally inspiring. And, you know, I think for young girls and, and really young anyone, uh, you know, entering the the science field, they can be really inspiring stories. And you actually interviewed, uh, for listeners, Allison actually interviewed me a couple months ago. So if you want, you can go to womanscientist.com and check out Allison Lee interviewing me. <laughs> um, you can get all kinds of Allison interviews going on. <laughs> so Allison, you mentioned a little bit 
so you mentioned a little bit how you did some field biology for a couple of years where you were studying things like birds and squirrels and you were up in the mountains, very terrestrial ecology, right? Yeah. And now you're very much so focused on the ocean. You're, you're studying phytoplankton. You were in the lab as well as now at Scripps, you're studying phytoplankton. How do you think that's helped you to actually be a better scientist and kind of having a, a good understanding of terrestrial ecosystems as well as marine ecosystems and kind of how they're blended? I would say that the marine world is, I guess, as far as phytoplankton and marine microbes are concerned, um, less explored than the terrestrial world, I think, as humans. And because of agricultural reasons, we, we understand plants, uh, forests, um, ecosystems on land a lot better almost. And a lot of what uh, we know from those terrestrial systems, uh, researchers apply to the marine environment. I think the marine environment is so much more complicated because you're not just surviving in air. You have water and moving water and stratified water and other organisms with you know chemical cues floating through that water. And I just think it's a lot more dynamic of a system. So the two go really well together. And then for me, I am a person who learns best by having my own experience or doing something. And that's when these bigger connections for me are really made as opposed to taking a class or learning something in school. I have to be out in the field to see and understand it at a different level. And so I really bring those experiences to just when I'm thinking about for my PhD, even like a research thesis topic, uh, I think I'm drawing on those experiences of how I personally understand the natural world. And so your PhD research is kind of just getting going. You're in the first like couple months of your PhD program at Scripps. And um, you kind of started the project over the last year during your master's capstone project. So we've been talking, you know, throughout the episode now that you study phytoplankton. I think we need to kind of back up a little bit and for maybe some listeners that don't know what phytoplankton is, can you give us a nice little brief definition of what is phytoplankton? Yes. So plankton are just drifters in the ocean environment and phytoplankton are the ones that can photosynthesize. They have chloroplasts. They use the sunlight's energy to make their own energy. And they're also responsible for producing over 50% of the Earth's oxygen. So they're incredibly important to the globe. I've often heard them referred to as, and I think you even refer to them in your blog sometimes, as like an invisible underwater forest. Can you kind of describe what that means? Yeah, so I think that's um, definitely a term uh, coined by Falkowski, uh, who wrote about this invisible forest and in that you'd pick up, uh, you know, a bucket of seawater and you wouldn't know anything was in it until you looked under the microscope. And then you see these phytoplankton and phytoplankton are so diverse. And because they are photosynthesizing, you know, they're not not all phytoplankton are technically plants. We don't need to go into that <laughs> definition, but um, they're protists. But um, you also have zooplankton or these little animals that also drift around in the ocean. And so it's called the invisible forest. Just it's memorable and it, it really explains, it kind of makes that connection to, I think, us humans who are very terrestrial oriented. Yeah. And we can't see it with our, with our naked eye, right? 
So it really is invisible and, unless you do use some kind of instrument. And and yet they are so important, like you said, producing so much of our planet's oxygen and, you know, being at the base of the ocean food web, just like, you know, plants on land are at the base of the terrestrial food web. These microscopic again not really plants but we won't go into that yeah. <laughs> um, these microscopic plants that are floating in, in the ocean are at the base of the ocean food web so super important um, so for those of you that maybe needed to get caught up on phytoplankton hopefully now you are <laughs> when you look at them under the microscope can you describe what you know some kind of typical phytoplankton look like like diatoms and things like that yeah so there are a couple we kind of group them into these classes that are just easy to identify based on how they look, um, their morphology. And diatoms, I think they're the most beautiful. They're the ones you've probably seen um, drawings by Ernst Haeckel. There's mosaics made of them. If you even just Google search diatoms, um, these beautiful mosaics will come up. And it's because their glass-shelled silica walls um, kind of give rise to these really intricate this really in intricate architecture and they can range in size. So you get small ones and you get ones that are about as big as a grain of sand, but under the microscope, that's when that real beauty comes alive. And then you have uh, dinoflagellates, for example. Um, they're a whole nother category of crazy. They come in uh, shapes like a teapot. Uh, there's some that look like spaceships. There's some that uh, look like, I don't even know how to describe their little aliens with these long fingers sticking out. There's other ones that are triangles. A lot of them are long and skinny like rods. They're just incredibly diverse. Yeah, it's like this whole diverse world of plants, just like when you look on land and you see a diversity of plants around you, it's like this amazing diversity of plants of just microscopic and they're just intricate and beautiful. Yeah. So it's awesome that you're studying them. Um, I love phytoplankton. And so you're currently getting your PhD at Scripps and you're in Dr. Maria Vernet's lab and she specifically studies polar phytoplankton. And by polar, I mean studying phytoplankton that lives both in the North Pole as well as the South Pole, so around the Arctic and the Antarctic. So why is it important to study phytoplankton, these microscopic plants, protists, algae that live <laughs> in the ocean at the poles? Why is this so important? Yeah, so um, like we've touched on before, phytoplankton, there's like three main things they're contributing to. The role of oxygen production, over 50%. Um, they're at the base of the food web, supporting all higher you know, levels of life above them in an ecosystem. And then they're also contributing to the global carbon cycle. And at the poles, these regions are experiencing warming at a more rapid rate than anywhere else in the world with climate change. And so what happens at the polar regions is really important to understand because it'll be the first place where, I mean, these changes have already been uh, seen for decades. So to really dig in and start to understand those regions starting at the base of the food web with these organisms that are so critical to other processes that, you know, control life on Earth, I personally think that's the passion that I'm using to go that direction with the research. Yeah, I mean, it's very much so fundamental. You know, these organisms are fundamental and the poles are fundamental and just kind of the whole thing is very fundamental to the health of the planet. Yeah, and I wouldn't say anybody ever 
you know, when I was a kid, I'm not like, I love phytoplankton because they're not cute and cuddly. Um, they're not this big charismatic, you know, megafauna, we call it. So you can't even see them. <laughs> no, I know. you. Would, I didn't even know they existed until uh, I started working at the Institute for Systems Biology six years prior to getting my master's. So, yeah, it wasn't really until that where I was like, oh, my gosh, these things are amazing and they look so cool under the microscope. And so with this research that you're doing... A big component of it is, like I mentioned in the intro, is actually trying to bring phytoplankton research at the poles, so in the Arctic and the Antarctic, into the world of citizen science. So first off, can you give us a, a brief synopsis of what is citizen science? Yeah, citizen science um, is when regular people join in, <laughs> <laughs> just anybody joins in with a researcher scientists and when you pair the two where you're both contributing to a research question then that's what we call citizen science so i mean number one step in in research is observation and so a lot of the citizen science projects that exist are beginning with just observations like photographs of clouds or whales or birds animals they see um to get people involved at that entry level so that science is more, you know, it's not this thing that you can only do if you're, if you've studied this in university, it's open to all. Anybody can do science. I mean, you know, at certain levels. So they can at least contribute. Yeah. They can contribute to science. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the citizens that are enlisted to help with the scientific research, they're already out in the field. You know, maybe if for instance, it's a bird project, they're already going birding, you know, they're bird watching enthusiasts and so they're out there and they can be kind of the eyes and the ears of these scientists and it's it's a really great network that can be formed yeah there's actually also um an organization has now formed called the citizen science association and they just had their second um citizen science conference and i think it's going to be every other year but it was amazing to go and just see the support for citizen science um all the different communities tr really trying to work out what makes robust citizen science? You know, what projects work? How can we involve people? That was awesome. So in terms of your project, how are you involving citizen scientists with phytoplankton research in the polls? Um, so when I had kind of come to a place in my last job where I wanted to see what else you could do with science besides publications or making educational curriculum, that sort of drove my inspiration to pick a project when I was in my master's because it was a very interdisciplinary master's where we focused on policy, economics, and social issues around marine science. And so I personally always loved to travel as a tourist on citizen science projects. So I thought, why not try to you know, develop something like that with traveling, but people doing phytoplankton? Because I had done it in an educational sense with high schoolers and, you know, adults are just big kids inside. So um, if the high schoolers appreciated it, I figured adults would too. And Maria Vernay, who is at Scripps, who I'm, is my advisor, um, she had the experience in polar phytoplankton uh, research and she was connected with some of the tour operators down in Antarctica that visit the West Antarctic Peninsula. And so we created this bigger project um, where we basically connect with various tourist ships that are going down there. You know, in any 
given season, there may be 5,000 researchers from all the various countries, but there were upwards of 44,000 tourists going to the peninsula every year. And those ships are there from November all the way on through to March. So they have this presence. They're like the local community, basically, mm-hmm. um, even though there are no residents in Antarctica. And so I thought, what a great opportunity to sort of, you know, create that the project around um, joining them with current research that's going on. And I think they've loved the citizen science projects that they've been involved with so far. And so um, the one we kind of developed for that community is more hands on, like they actually get to deploy certain instruments into the water um, and help take those samples that we'll then analyze back in the lab. And I, this is the first full year that it's going out this season. So I really hope it continues to build and we could get a, an amazing set of data and yeah. contribute to involving, you know, the visitors down there with research because Antarctica, as you know, has set aside specifically for peace and science. So it seems strange if there's too much of a disconnect that people who love to go see these environments will hopefully also uh, learn more about them through the lens of science. Yeah, yeah, it's so great. And so you actually just recently traveled to Iceland. Um, can you tell us about your experience in Iceland as well? Yeah, I, at the beginning of October, there was a conference in Iceland, and it is the AICO and IATO Polar Field Staff Conference. And those acronyms just mean the organizations that sort of govern the Arctic tourism industries and the Antarctic tourism industries. All the expedition leaders and field staff uh, came to this conference and I had the opportunity to present this citizen science project to that group. And it was an amazing conference because, first of all, this group of people are just incredibly inspirational. And some of the things that they get trained to do, it's like, if there is ever an apocalypse, these are the people I want around me. (laughs) And then um, I got received a lot of support for my project. And in particular, there's a lot of support for citizen science, because, um, you know, people, uh, some of their visitors have been to Antarctica or the Arctic multiple times. And so this is a new way that they can be involved and um, have a new experience. And so what are you essentially asking these tourists that are on a ship, either in the Arctic or the Antarctic? What are you asking them to do? Yeah, I am mainly coordinating with the onboard um, either specialist or citizen science coordinator or education outreach specialist. Um, I show them how to collect a sample. So it's with a plankton net. They can use a more concentrated sample on board for their you know, engagement Um, outreach, um, any educational lectures that they give, they can kind of bring that invisible force to life. And then um, the samples that they're collecting for us are um, going to be looked at, analyzed um, genetically, so we can get a better sense of, you know, whatever you can't see under a microscope, you could sequence uh, the DNA and see who's there at another level. Um, Who's there more specifically, we're interested in the fjords and how melting glacial water, that fresh water enters the fjords could alter this phytoplankton community. So we'll also be having them measure those water properties. So they deploy a castaway CTD, which is just a cool little instrument that measures the saltiness, the temperature and the depth. And then, so they take the samples for 
that they'll send back to us up in San Diego, but then they'll also have a portion of that sample they can look under the microscope with on board and get that experience. They're really not only contributing to science, which is so great, um, and engaging them with that side of visiting the Antarctic or the Arctic, but they're also getting to see fully the ecosystem that they're visiting, right? You know, because they couldn't see it with their own eyes, but through this project, through participating in this project, they're actually getting to see the ecosystem, you know, fully. Well, and I think too, in Antarctica, it's so amazing that the whole ecosystem is really dependent on krill. Krill are like the keystone linchpin holding the ecosystems together that the whales, seals, and penguins eat. And Mm -hmm. the krill are um, interested in eating these phytoplankton, but they're not just eating any phytoplankton. It's been shown that they at certain periods in the season, the krill stomachs are full of diatoms, which are these bigger um, glass covered. um, They just get more lipids or fattier. And so they have a preference of what phytoplankton they're eating. And so if there's any shifts in that base of the food web, it could alter the krill, which are that linchpin, and it could trickle up to the whales, the seals, and the penguins. So I think making that full circle for the guests who visit and participate Personally, in my mind, I think that would be an amazing connection because you're going to photograph these big animals that are in this beautiful environment. And if you can understand the full, you know, circle of life, I think is amazing. Yeah, really amazing. And so you will actually be going down to Antarctica again very soon. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that trip will entail? Yeah, so the season's already underway, and I, again, have an amazing opportunity to uh, join on one of the tour vessels, the Hebridean Sky, for the month of December. So I'll get to really experience what they're seeing, uh, how a tour operation ship goes, because my experience has been in the Ross Sea, which is on the other side of Antarctica, and it's been on a big research vessel that is uh, the Nathaniel B. Palmer. So uh, research operations, very different from how the tourism industry will be functioning. And I think if there's going to be a successful citizen science project, it'd be really helpful to understand the logistics from their side instead of just dreaming it up from a researcher's side. I, I think citizen science really works well when it works best for all of the people involved. Yeah. And then you, you brought up a good point, you know, you going, for instance, to Antarctica on a research vessel is going to be very different than going on a tourism ship. One of those differences is that the tourism ships you've explained to me go much more in these fjords. They go in these like narrower passages where they're kind of more sightseeing, whereas a research vessel would kind of just be, going to their specific study sites and maybe not just cruising as much into these lesser visited areas. So has that been an inspiration for you in terms of trying to study these phytoplankton in these kind of lesser visited areas? Yeah, I think so. Um, because some of these fjords that line the peninsula, uh, the West Antarctic Peninsula, I mean, you could probably get a research ship in there, but like the Nathaniel B. Palmer is a 300 some feet. And I think with the smaller ships, especially the ones that, you know, you get these yachts, maybe they're 60 feet in length. They're just more maneuverable. They have the ability to go into these smaller fjords um, and make those landings to shore or get close to the glaciers, which is where we're interested in really 
focusing the research. That's just another resource and method that is really helpful for getting into those smaller areas. Also, the research ships, you know, I think the U.S., we only have two, the Gould and the Palmer. So um, Mm -hmm. to get time on those is really competitive and expensive. And also they have, you know, their grids that they go on to monitor the continental shelf, um, the Palmer LTER project. And so taking that away and being able to look at the full season with the, I mean, if you will, the fleet of tour operators, I think will provide a really powerful way to looking at this environment. For sure. Well, I think it's absolutely amazing that you're engaging the public in your research and you know, you mentioned earlier, you're really into outreach and education of science. So not only do you love to, you know, utilize your blog, Woman Scientist, to, to get research out to people, um, and, and you, you do outreach in a number of different ways, but you're literally, your research in part is outreach and education by, by incorporating citizen science and, and creating this whole new citizen science program. So it's really cool. And I'm super excited to see where it goes um, as your PhD progresses. And for listeners, if you've been inspired by what Allison is doing with phytoplankton and her research at the polls and, and using citizen science, or if you have been inspired by anything else that she's talked about today in her journey as a scientist, um, I encourage you to check out her website, womanscientist.com, and also visit her social media channels. Woman Scientist is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, you know, reach out to her, ask her questions, tell her she's awesome, uh, whatever, whatever you want. And um, Allison, I want to Really, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you and um, making this, you know, Ocean Allison squared. And um, yeah, so uh, thank you for all that you do. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun and I love your podcast. So keep up the good work. You just heard Allison Lee, biological oceanography PhD student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, working to bring phytoplankton research to the world of citizen science. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com and tune into next month's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.